A Tale of Three Kings, written by Gene Edwards. And essentially, this, this book is a, a, a character study of, of Saul and David and Absalom. And it shows, it shows how they treat each other. Really, it focuses on David and how he, he treats Saul when Saul is the king. And then eventually, how does he treat Absalom when, when David is the king? But the first half of this book, he concentrates on the relationship between David and Saul. And he asks the question, the main premise of the book, he asks the question is, what do you do when someone throws a spear at you? Do you pick it up and throw it back? That's correct. He's using a figure of speech, of course, and he's applying it to our modern day context. But he's asking the question, what do you do when someone hurls accusations and criticism and insults your way? How do you respond when someone's anger and jealousy is burning and you're the object of it? David experienced this. Twice, he had a spear hurled at him, but he didn't throw it back. And as an example of the good king we long for, he humbled himself before God and allowed the Lord to teach him in the midst of this hostile environment, of his hostile leader, his king, Saul. See, God protects David's life. The last chapter and this one, but he doesn't protect him from a hard life, a difficult life, one filled with confusion and opposition. Instead, instead he preserves him through it. Chapter 18 was when everything was going right. David was on the ascent to the throne, but now that progress has halted here in chapter 19, and he starts to head downhill with David fleeing for his life. So the question is, does this mean that God is not with him anymore? Is his presence left David because David is now on the run? Absolutely not. He is just as present with David in chapter 18 when things are going right as he is in 19 when it doesn't seem to be going right at all, when he's fleeing for his life. And it's in the days of this opposition... And David's fleeing for his life that the Lord does the most work in David's heart. Because one day, David will be sitting on that throne. And the last thing Israel needs is another Saul. So what does God do? He takes David through the ringer. And he teaches him humility. I'm going to read our text now, all 24 verses, the whole chapter. So we'll start in... In verse 1, read with me. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in a field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. 
For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And, he, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair as its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillows of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go so that he escaped. And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Samuel had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Samuel sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as the head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. And they also prophesied. Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, Where is Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all the day and all the night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we come before you this morning and ask that your, your presence be among us, that your spirit would, would fill us. Uh, and that you would allow our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to be uh, wide open for you to uh, plant your gospel inside of us. Let it transform us and and bring us into the image of Christ. We know that you can do it, and and we trust uh, that you will. So 
uh, would you be with us this morning? Be, be with me, Lord, as I preach. Uh, uh, bring me into humility and, and dependence upon you and help me to be clear uh, and, and uh, in a way that is easy to understand and to apply. Uh, teach us from your text. This is your word, Lord. Uh, teach us from it. It has power. It has power to save. It has power to transform. Uh, help us to believe that uh, and think that way as we, as we listen to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the question for us this morning is, how does God preserve his people? That's what we're going to try and answer in our passage this morning. Does he do it by protecting us from opposition? A protective bubble that keeps us from hitting every landmine? Or does he use opposition and landmines to disrupt our plans in order for him to do his work in us, to humble us, to preserve us, to strengthen our faith. See, God's agenda is not always to protect us from opposition, but it's to preserve us through it. He does not desire that your well-being be frictionless. So in 1 Samuel 19, we're going to see two ways that God shows us his preserving work, which will serve as our two points this morning. So the first one, he preserves his people in the midst of hostility. And the second point is he preserves his people through humility. So we're going to start off with the first point, preserving God, preserves his people in the midst of hostility. One of the most glaring points of hostility in this chapter, obviously, as we read, is Saul's anger toward David. But why is, why is Saul angry towards David? David has done everything right. He has done everything the king has asked and more. He risked his own life to slay the giant. He killed 200 Philistines when Saul asked for 100. He married his daughter and is now his son-in-law. He served Saul by playing the music of his harp when Saul had an evil spirit. He came in and served him in that way. But like Jesus said, they ask you to go one mile, go two. They ask you to kill 100 Philistines, kill 200. He is going the extra mile. What more could a king ask of his servant? Nothing. David had been doing everything right up to this point, and he deserved no such treatment. But it came anyways. It came because of the jealousy in Saul's heart. And it didn't come out of nowhere. This was, this was built up, but we just see it manifested here. And it started in last chapter, 18, verse 8, where it says, And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. This is what happens when jealousy meets humility. It attacks. Saul's kingdom was slipping away because of his own foolish choices. But now he sees the object of his jealousy. He sees the object that's going to take away his kingdom. And that object is David. He's not going to let him take it away. He's not going to give it up. He's not going to back down. One commentator puts it like this. 
If there was ever a biblical example of God's mocking rebuke of man's pretension in sin and unbelief, it is that of Israel's King Saul. Mad though he may have been, Saul possessed all the power the world can offer. He was crazed by a jealous desire to kill David, his own faithful servant and anointed one of the Lord. Saul's hatred was ultimately directed against the gospel of God's grace, that he might snuff out God's kingdom to preserve his own. See, he looked at David and hated the very sight of him, a humble shepherd boy hogging all of God's grace. Why is the Lord with him and he's not with me? Well, now Saul is out for blood, and as we read in verse 1, this is the first time he openly declares his intentions. It says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, all his servants, that they should kill David. Jonathan then talks with his father, and he cools him down for a moment. But then what happens? The same thing that happened last chapter. David has success in battle. So read with me in verses 8 through 10. This, this is what's getting to Saul. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Apparently, war and battle was Saul's jealousy button. And whenever David pressed it, there was a spear heading his way. Jealousy is irrational and specifically triggered. It's irrational in this instance because Saul wanted David to be successful in battle. Understand, he wanted him to. He wanted him to destroy the enemy. He told him to. What, what king wouldn't do this? So when David did what Saul wanted, and he did it very well, Saul turned against him. It's irrational. And jealousy is also peculiar in how it manifests when Saul was able to actually be rational for a moment and think about what David actually did for him and how he wasn't against him, he calmed down. In those verses 1 through 7 with Jonathan talking, he calmed down for a moment. When he, was, when he was rational, things went back to normal for a moment. And Saul swore to never kill David again, to never pursue his life again. But David had success in battle Again, Saul's weak spot. Immediately, the vow to never attack David is over, and out comes the spear. You see, jealousy breeds discontentment by comparison, by its definition. If I am jealous for what someone else has, that means I'm discontent for what I have. I like theirs better than I like mine. And I wonder how often we act this way. How often we act like Saul in this manner, wanting what others have. Do, do you find yourself picking the best parts of, others, of other people's lives, saying, I want 
their mind, or I want their energy, I want their health. Or when you talk with your spouse, you think or, or even say, and I hope you don't say this, but his wife doesn't do that. Or her husband doesn't say that. Or you might think, you know, I wish people thought so highly of me. Or why is, why is he married now? Why, why is she married now and I'm not married? It becomes like assembling the $6 million man, which I'm sure there's maybe one person in this room who's actually seen this show. Maybe zero. One? Okay. Long time ago. The $6 million, the premise is the, the main character lost uh, a bunch of his limbs in war, and so they did a, an experiment on him, and they took a bunch of machine parts, and they put them in the places where he lost his body parts. Well, what they were doing was they were replacing what he had lost with the better version of it. And sometimes when we look through the lens of jealousy, that's exactly what we do. We see the, the weak part the part of our body that's not functioning, and we want the better version of it. And we try to piece together this perfect version of ourself. I want that person's health. I want this person's discipline. I want this person's intelligence. Just picking and choosing the best of what, other have, what others have, not realizing that's not the whole picture. They have weaknesses too. They have their struggles too. It's an unrealistic and an untrue view of what others really possess. Or maybe your jealousy is more focused on possessions. You desire a better place to live, bigger, more room, maybe in a better location or a better car to drive. You know, one that doesn't break down as much, one that's faster and it looks nicer and let's just call it a Tesla because that's what we're all thinking. Or clothes, or electronics, or jobs, or books, and the list goes on and on and on. And none of these things that I mentioned are, are bad in themselves, but a good indicator would be to see how your heart responds when someone you know gets the thing that you want. Are you happy for them? Or... Does your mind immediately go to how disappointed you are in your own version of that thing? Each time these things happen, discontentment settles a little bit deeper in our heart. And bitterness and anger and jealousy rear their ugly heads. But besides breeding discontentment, which is, which is bad enough. There are, there are two other things that jealousy does that we see. The first is that it reveals our greatest love. Saul's greatest love was his kingdom, not God's kingdom. If he had seen himself as God's servant and God's steward, steward of God's people, of God's kingdom for God's glory, then he wouldn't have held so tightly to the throne because it was never actually his to begin with. He loved the praise that he received for being king instead of praising the king, Yahweh himself. And look where it drove him. To summarize the last part of our text that we already read this morning, 
Saul sends messengers to go after David, and they all start prophesying. prophesying. Then he sends another group of messengers, the same thing. Sends another group of messengers, the same thing. And then finally, he gets his inner Thanos on, and he does it himself. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to take care of this. And what happens? The exact same thing. Listen to the last verse again. Such a weird ending to this chapter. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said is Saul also among the prophets. He stripped off his royal garments. Bookending chapters 18 and 19, when Jonathan takes his clothes and gives it to David, signifying the true king. Now Saul, the king, is derobed from his royal garments, signifying his kingdom's coming to an end. But that's where his jealousy drove him. It drove him mad. Because his identity was wrapped up in his position, and he didn't know the love of God. Saul's jealousy drove him mad. His destruction was from the inside out. The second thing jealousy does is cloud our vision of God's preservation in our lives. Remember, God is preserving your faith amidst opposition, even if that opposition is your own jealousy. It clouds our vision because when that jealousy button is pressed, all we see is lack of something. When God says we have everything in Christ, why hasn't the Lord given me that yet? Why is he surrounding me with others who are getting the things that I want? All the while, missing his work on your heart in the midst of it. He's preserving your faith by deepening your love and contentment for him. In revealing to you what your heart truly desires. And just as we heard last week, Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Our jealousy, though sinful, is used by God to reveal what our hearts truly long for and to move us further down the road of longing for him alone. So it might be anger and a jealous heart in others towards us, or it might even be our own jealous hearts. But God continues to preserve our faith despite it all. And he does it by bringing us into humility. That's his goal. That's where he's bringing us, which brings us to our second point. God preserves his people despite hostility, and he preserves his people in humility, through humility. So let's return back to the first scene here, and, and let's contrast how the king and his son respond toward David. How does Saul and Jonathan respond toward David, the future king? One looks to kill while the other looks to protect. So read with me verse 1. We're going to go verse 1 through 7. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants. 
that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. See, he's being rational with him. He's, he's bringing him to a different understanding instead of just being angry. Continues in verse 5. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to him. This isn't the first time, nor is it the last time, that Jonathan is the means of David's preservation. Jonathan was the son of King Saul, the next to be in line for king. If anyone were to be jealous, it would be him. Saul's reign was coming to an end regardless. But Jonathan has his future reign taken away from him by David's anointing. Who, who knows how long Jonathan had desired this? A leader in his dad's army, learning what he could at a very young age of how to be king, succeeding in battle, only to see someone else who's not part of the royal lineage come and take his place. He could have easily been jealous, knowing he was no longer going to be king. But he knew who the true king was, and he humbly submitted to God's will over his own. He chose to follow the true king instead. And Michal, his sister, Saul's daughter, also chose the same path when she deceived her father for the sake of the true king. Both Jonathan and Michal are illustrations of what Jesus taught about the cost of discipleship. And that there may come a time when we must choose him over all else. And that all else are members of our own family who don't want to follow the true king. I'm going to read from Matthew 10, just a few verses, 34 to 37. This is what Jesus says, the cost of discipleship. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Saul's son and daughter both chose to follow the true, the true king instead of their own father. Even when it was difficult and could have cost them their lives, they chose to be humble servants of the true king instead of the easier road with the enemy. How difficult that must be. But so worth it. We've looked so far at Saul, the jealous king and enemy of God. Then we just looked at Jonathan and Michal, the humble servants and friends of God. But now we're going to look at David. David, the one who was anointed king, 
who slayed the giant, who defeated his enemy, but now is dodging spears and climbing out windows. What happened? What is God doing in his life? David is the one that has said the Lord is with him, but now he's literally fleeing for his life. Here's what I want us to see. This is where the real difference between chapter 18 and chapter 19 that are so similar. Here's the real difference of what I want us to see. In chapter 18, even though David did dodge a spear, God protected him, things were still going well for David. He had opposition, but he was still ascending to the throne. He was still thriving at his work. But in chapter 19... The ascent to the throne is put on pause. His opposition remains, but, but this time he has no uphill mo- movement to motivate him to face his enemy. His enemy grows bigger and his success grows smaller. So what is he thinking as this is happening? Psalm 59 essentially serves as David's journal entry during this time. The title of Psalm 59 reads, A Psalm of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. This is what we just read. Yet this is is what David writes. I'm going to read a few verses from this. Listen to what he says in the middle of people pursuing him to kill him. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. Verse 17, O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. When it seems that all is being stripped away from God's anointed, he responds with, I will sing praises to you, for you are the God who shows me steadfast love. Handling opposition is much easier when it seems like God is still with us. You could face slander in your workplace, but if your business is striving and you're getting promotions, it's much easier to handle. But what happens when that criticism and that gossip and that slander leads to your business shutting down or it leads to your firing? How do you perceive God's presence then? What about when your life's plans aren't coming to life the way you pictured them? Can you still see that the Lord is preserving your faith in the midst of your opposition, that he is still indeed with you? Commentator Dale Ralph Davis uh, puts it this way, which I think is great. He says, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. The fact that you're still standing, that you still have your life and your faith, means that God is still with you. It's not ease of your life or the success of your work that determines whether or not the Lord is still with you. This is very clear with David and very clear with us. David's life clearly illustrates this. How much more the life of Jesus? How much more the life 
of Jesus. Jesus, who David's life and kingship points us to, was by no means exempt from these same troubles. The father did not protect his son from opposition by any means, but most certainly preserved him through it. Christ came into his own, and his own did not receive him. Just like Saul, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had hearts that were committed to their own positions and their own glory. And with raging jealousy, he became a threat, and they sought his life. But instead of retaliating, Jesus chose humility. Instead of being jealous for his own exaltation, he chose the road of humiliation. Entrusting himself to the Father for his vindication and his exaltation at the right time because he was zealous for the glory of God. He did not become bitter towards those who persecuted him, but was humbly obedient to the point of death. He sought for the Father to be glorified and knew his identity as the Son of God. That's the key. He knew his identity as the Son of God. He made no occasion for jealousy because he wasn't threatened by the will of his enemies. He knew the Father would preserve him, and so he set his face to Jerusalem. He set his face to the cross, to the enemy of death. For our sake. His blood was shed for our sins, and he gave us a new identity as sons and daughters of the true king, the king of the universe. See, only the power of the gospel kills fear and jealousy. Who is there to be jealous of when I am a child of the king of the universe? Nothing can threaten that position, that identity. Our identity is not bound up in profession or role, but in the love of God in Christ. And this frees us from having to become discontent and jealous. There's a great illustration by Tim Keller in a, a very small book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness that I think captures uh, this understanding of what gospel humility really looks like. He paints this picture of uh, a skier who just went down the run of his life and is in first place and is, is just excited for, for what he has accomplished. And then just behind him, another person goes down and does the same run, but, but better and ends up beating him out. And in the picture of gospel humility, you know, this is so difficult as an athlete, the, the picture of gospel humility is not being jealous of that person who just beat you out for first place, but being excited just to watch it and to be a part of it. Not wrapping up your identity in the fact that you have to win each time, but just enjoying the creativity of the person who went down and just had that spectacular run. That's gospel humility. It's not binding up our identity in a job or a promotion or being first, but being happy for the person who, who comes in and does the job better 
and being, being excited for them, removing yourself from the equation because the verdict is in. You, you are a son or daughter of the king regardless of what happens, regardless of whether you're, you're first place or you, you got passed up for the promotion and sitting back and, and, and applauding and truly being happy for that, that individual uh, that might have beat you out or might have done the job better. That's... That's what gospel humility looks like. And it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can do that. Those who haven't trusted him can't have that. They can't have that security of their identity in Christ. As we conclude, I want us to think of, think of two questions. Just two questions, introspective questions as, as we go out. The first one is, what areas do you love receiving praise more than giving praise to Christ? This doesn't, this doesn't mean that when someone comes up to you and says, good job, that was outstanding, that was great, we immediately respond with praise God. Like, maybe. But the point is to actually praise God. Not just say it, but to actually do it. I, I have this opportunity or this position. I was able to do that because God has given me this. And my identity is not tied up in that. Even though God has given me this opportunity or this job or this platform, my identity is not tied up in that. So if someone does it better or if I'm not doing it uh, at peak performance every time, I, I don't have to worry. My identity is not in that. And the second question is what aspects of someone else's life do you desire to be your own? And not in the exemplary or modeling type way. What I'm talking about is the discontentment that you have in your heart when you see what they have. If I had that, then I would be fill in the blank. There's no need to be jealous. The Lord is preserving you with what he gave you. Let's remember that as we go out this week. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, you, you are a gracious king and a merciful God. And we stay in our faith because you preserve us. You who started a good work in us are faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Help us to believe these words, to buy into this fact that we are your children and you will not leave us, you will not forsake us. And it's not the success that we have right now that determines any of that. Oh, help us to see, help us to see the example of Christ. Help us to see that he purchased for us a victory that cannot be taken away. And he has made us into a new creature that does not need to be jealous, that does not need to be discontent, but that we can be content because we have everything already in Christ. We don't have to look out into the world and say, I want that, uh, I, I want this. We could say, I have it. I have everything I ever need or ever want. I have my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that is not going away. 
Help us to see this picture, Lord, because this week, this week there's going to be a moment where we, we second-guess that truth. And I pray that in that moment, your spirit would remind us of who we are, not what we've done. As we go out into the week, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with this truth, the truth that sets us free, free from anger, free from jealousy, free from wanting what we don't have, and to be grateful for everything that you've given us. You've given us Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.